Hello and welcome to Crystal Podcast on iCode Media. Today, Ted and I are celebrating our 200th episode. That's 200. It's been a lot of fun to, to, to go through, and it's been a lot of fun for us to be able to share this platform with all of you, all our listeners who give us inspiration every day. Uh, and the other thing we wanted to do today was, uh, personally, I wanted to have a bunch of people on who have had a real significant impact in my life over the last four years. And I wanted to dive in, have them dive into kind of what they have been doing uh, over the last, basically since the beginning of 2019. And obviously COVID, COVID has been in there, but just kind of the things that have excited them. So we've got some special guests coming in, uh, but I'm going to kick it off right now with Ted. As always, be sure to subscribe to the podcast, write a review, share it with your friends, and support those who support Ted and I. One of the challenging things with patients is when they invest in a really high quality pair of glasses and and customized lenses. It can be challenging to keep those lenses clean, keep them scratch-free, smudge-free. And so we now have the ability with Crizal Sapphire HR lenses to offer our patients the best-in-class anti-reflective coating in a way that is really high resistance so that they're not uh, having to care for their lenses as much as when those lenses are caring for them. So remember that you can provide patients that best-in-quality, best-in-class transparency, clarity, durability, and UV protection in a single Crizal coating. If you want to learn more about Crizal Sapphire HR, contact your Essilor account executive or visit EssilorPro.com slash Crizal. You know, I get questions all the time about how do we use 9.2 codes and 9.9 codes and which ICD codes go with different CPT codes and what can be built together and what can't. And this confusion, this uncertainty really holds us back oftentimes to be able to do what we want to do, which is help our patients see clearly and provide their best opportunity for a lifelong vision. And so we built iCode Education for that specific purpose. Uh, we have lots of resources that are based in helping you understand disease states, helping you understand revenue cycles and billing and coding practices. So check out iCodeEducation.com. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E Education.com. And we have a specific uh, bundle there for you if you'd like to take advantage of it. It's the Premier Billing and Coding Bundle. We've got a 10% discount code just for listeners of this show. Uh, you can just, in the coupon code at checkout, you can enter in iCodeMedia22. That's E-Y-E-C-O-D-E. D-E-M-E-D-I-A-22 at checkout. We'd love to have you. We'd love to work with you. Check out iCodeEducation.com. So, Ted, dude, so happy that you could join me uh, to, to do this podcast thing that we've been doing for the last few years and share the, share the platform and, and help us out and really kind of take the podcast in sort of a different direction and sort of your own direction. Um, there's, I, I love your shows more than just because I get a break, but I get, I really feel like I get all this additional insight from the types of guests you have on. So tell me a little bit about, um, about Ted McElroy. You know, I, I think that a lot of times people who listen to the podcast may not have kind of your backstory as much. Um, but you know, your backstory is pretty deep in terms of the association and the organizations. Uh, and right now you're on a trip that, that is going to be kind of meeting with some of those old friends, uh, that you've got. So tell us a little bit about, um, kind of what you've done historically, give us an update and then kind of your, your last couple of years of, of what's been exciting to you and where you see the future over the next few. So uh, to get, I guess, give a broad brush picture of everything. I started practicing in Tifton 29 years ago and 
came fresh out of school straight to South Georgia. And it never crossed my mind that I was going to go anywhere else, actually. I, I knew it was going to be rural optometry for me and was pretty excited about that. And the opportunities we had in Tifton were better, actually, than the town that I actually grew up in 45 miles away, which was Douglas. And I started off there with a uh, ophthalmologist who um, was your typical old school, you know, not really wanting to play ball type kind of situation. Um, and I quickly figured out that wasn't working out too well. One day he came into my office and said, hey, I hear Bob Coleman's practice is for sale. And I thought, well, there's my cue. So <laughs> I bought. That's a subtle Coleman's way to practice. say get out of practice. Get out of practice. Exactly. Yeah. Get yeah. out of practice. So, so I moved across town, which in Tifton, that's, you know, less than five miles away and opened up a practice after I bought our daughter Coleman's practice. I was involved with the GOA very early as a student. We had had, uh, I don't know if y'all are familiar, everybody's familiar with something called an SREB grant, the Southern Regional Educational Board grant. Yeah. They're basically there to hold seats at schools if you don't have a school in your state. Georgia does not have an optometry school. So they had contracted with SREB to put these grants in place so we would hold seats for Georgia students at SCO. And I took, got one of those seats. My second year the grants were pulled. So we were just going to be without them. And we found out that it was going to be gone and I was going to be okay. My parents and grandparents had set money aside that I didn't use in college because I had scholarship for undergrad, but I was using that money to go to optometry school with. But there were a lot of our classmates and those below me that were going to be in a really big bind at that point. So we all got together, wrote our legislators, got involved uh, with GOA very early on. Uh, funny out of that story um, of I'm trying to remember exactly how many, but I think there were around 12 probably of us and two of us have been state president for GLA, um, you know, very early involvement. I was really involved with GOA all the way through. Uh, I actually was served as president the centennial year, centennial year for GOA, which was really neat. The year I rolled off, I was asked to be trustee for SECO. And I really wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. So I called up Ron Bannister, who was from a town not too far away from me. And he was at that time rolling from the trustees into the, the um, chair's positions. And I've also found out, I think I was the last choice to take that position as trustee, which is kind of, kind of funny. Sometimes that's um, okay. I know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the last choice is sometimes best, but it turned out to be one of the best gigs I think I've ever had in organized optometry, especially being a trustee. You, you got to go to some really incredible places. You got to have some fantastic continuing education in Atlanta every year. And I got to meet some wonderful people, which is probably the best part of it. In between being GOA president and, or before I became GOA president and, um, going through the chairs at SECO, I also got really involved in Vision Source. And that's probably been another uh, aspect I think has been very strong for my forming as an optometrist and understanding how things really work, so to speak. And uh, it, it has given me a great insight into our profession. Uh, this profession has been really good to my family, to me. Um, I've got a son that I'm sure people have heard me talk about that's going through school right now at Pikeville. 
He's a second year student, just got through his first set of block uh, for a uh, second year. And I, he's just excited that's over with <laughs> more than anything else. <laughs> but, you know, it's a it's been a really wonderful 29 years, uh, close to 30. And as you're mentioning this weekend, I'm actually on my way up to Myrtle Beach to go play golf with a bunch of past presidents for SECO that I've known for years. And we do this every year, just a chance to get together and talk about old times and beat each other up on the golf course and have a little fun. It's just a lot of great, great time. Yeah. I mean, hopefully you guys have good weather. You know, when you and I were golfing about a year ago, uh, we got poured on, but it, oh, man, yeah. it was a ton of fun. Just the same thing, catch up, you know, you get to get a, well, I don't know how many holes we played, but it wasn't that many before we had to no. call it a day. Um, so, uh, so, okay. Last couple of years, have been kind of crazy for everybody. I think back about, um, you know, I, I think this for me, for me personally, this podcast was such a great outlet when, when I needed something to dive into. And, you know, that's not, obviously we, we launched this in uh, the beginning of 2019. So it was like January 6th, 2019. And so I had done this for a year and, um, and, you know, just to kind of take, take the people back through it. You know, I, we, we did this for a year without any sponsorship, any support. It's just, it just was something I like doing. I had conversations with people all over the country when I was speaking or I was doing vision source stuff or, you know, traveling just for iCode. And, um, and I'd have these great conversations with people and, and I would bring them back to like our local vision source members or my friends. And I try to articulate this stuff like, Hey, this, this person is doing this and this person is doing that. And man, this is a great historical perspective. And, um, and I just was never doing a good job. I thought like of really sharing the the stories where I remember these people telling me stories and I'm getting goosebumps about, you know, um, getting goosebumps about like these stories. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, I can't articulate this, which is what it was born from, right? That's what the whole podcast was born from. And, um, and so, you know, fast forward into 2020, Cooper really kind of jumped on board, um, and, uh, and allowed me to kind of dive into it and continue to dive into it where other, I think, I think had Cooper not been on board, on board in 2020, um, there, it probably would have been a lot easier to get distracted, you know, and I, I've said this before, I've said that, you know, I, I loved doing the podcast in 2019 and I, I always kind of in the back of my mind have these, these like thoughts about what something, what might happen in the future. So I kind of think through things often. And one of the things that was really, I was really apprehensive about um, at that time uh, was like ever bringing on sponsors because I was worried that I wouldn't have fun anymore doing it. I was worried that it would like become a job. And so when they, when they came in and they, they said, look, Chris, we love what you do. We don't want to restrict what you're doing or control what you're doing. Uh, we just want to support it. I think that was that at that time, had I not had that, it would have probably been easier to, to jump away from doing the podcast on a regular basis when everything was hitting the fan in uh, March of 2020. And so, um, so like I can go back now and I, I'm, and Drew just jumped on and Cheryl just jumped on and I've, I've played those episodes before where I'm, I'm sitting back and I'm thinking uh, like you can hear in my voice. Like I listen to them occasionally to remind myself and I'm listening to them. I'm like, Holy cow. Like I was, I was so stressed out. I mean, I, I, I knew I was, uh, I think we all probably were, but like you could really hear it in my voice. And, um, 
And so anyway, like I say all that to say, clearly that was a big thing over the last couple of years. But um, Ted, before I get to that, uh, for your story, uh, welcome, Drew. These are a couple other special guests we had on tonight. Uh, welcome, uh, Cheryl. And, you know, again, Drew and Cheryl, we're going to kind of jump into to Drew, to Ted's kind of story that has been really exciting for him over the last couple of years. But um, and where, where he has has seen his practice go and seen what he's really enjoyed in the profession. But um, but, you know, you two. So obviously, Ted uh, has has kind of inspired this this podcast to continue to grow and evolve. But Drew, you and Cheryl both uh, have been super huge inspirations for the podcast and for me personally. Um, and so I, I wanted to have you on tonight to kind of rehash some of your thoughts and and really the things that excite you. So so we don't have to make this about Chris Wolf. We can make this about the people who are inspiring to me. And so um, so Ted, before we get to Drew and Cheryl, because I was already on you, tell me a little bit about uh, the last couple of years for you, Ted. COVID, non-COVID, exciting stuff, uh, frustrating stuff. What's what's been kind of your uh, your barometer over the last few years? I guess probably I'll have to go back to the first conversation that you and I actually had about this podcast. Um, you had just got, actually, I had just gotten to finish listening to the episode you had done with my dear friend and idol, Mike Rothschild, a great American. And um, I was listening to it and I thought, well, great. Now I can't do a podcast. And I mean, I actually, actually told you that, <laughs> you know, I said, I was, I was so jealous. You go, why? I said, because you've done this podcast and now I can't do one. Why can't you do one? Well, because like you're doing one. Well, so like, you know, I just completely jumped into the scarcity mentality at that point. You know, this is well before everything goes crazy and just your generosity allowing me to come on and do this. And I, the very first episode that you and I did together, you interviewed me and then I got a chance to turn around and interview you actually live at, a, at an administrator meeting. Um, we just sort of squirreled away into the into the lounge and uh, sat down and taped it out. But the thing that really has been helpful, I, I think this has been a very integral part of everything that I went through during the pandemic. I think it kept me sane um, because I was able to use this as an outlet, especially while things were really getting crazy. Uh, the, the episode that I did where I recapped everything that I had learned from Business Accelerator, you know, the, literally March the 13th. I, I get this gift from God laid in my lap of, you know, how I'm going to take care of my problems as we move into the pandemic and not knowing what that was going to be like. And then to take that information and give it out. And the the amount of people that came and said that really meant a lot to me. Just it was it propelled me through the entire uh, every all the months next go after that. Um, but just some of the conversations, I think the conversations have got to be the highlight of everything that's happened for me in the last two years, no doubt about it. Uh, the chance to talk to some really great people and to hear their stories and laugh with them and maybe even play a couple of jokes on them here and there. And to throw, for those of you that don't listen to my episode all the way through that you don't get to hear the Easter eggs at the end. That's just a shame. That's really a shame. You should go back and listen to those. Okay. Yeah. I always listen to all of them all the way through, Ted. <laughs> The um so yeah I think that's great I think that's great and I think um so that kind of brings me to to Drew because Drew you you've always been kind of on the forefront I get and sometimes you Facebook message me sometimes Drew and honestly like I don't check Facebook I, I purposefully don't check Facebook that often because uh it, it it actually is part of my sanity is to not do that 
And so I'll get this, I'll get this Facebook message from like some technology thing that drew, that drew finds Ted and drew will be like, can you believe this? You know, and he'll, 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 and I, and I'm like, this is four weeks later. I was like, he probably thinks I'm some kind of jerk that never responds to him. Uh, and so, uh, so anyway, um, so Drew is like, uh, Drew, you've, you've been kind of a, um, again, sort of a guiding light in, in, in my perspective of saying like, if I want to, if I ever am wondering about if I'm doing the right thing, uh, Drew will always kind of, and Cheryl, you do this too, which I really appreciate, but Drew will kind of set me straight, uh, and be like, you know what, this is, this is how I understand how you're thinking there, but let, what if you think this way? And then Drew also, you, you know, from my perspective, um, you've always been supportive and you have, you're always kind of thinking about like, what's the next technology and, and should we be thinking about this technology seriously? Or is this just a technology that's sort of a, you know, a, a term that I like to use, like a dubious technology, as opposed to sort of like a, a, a legitimate technology that we can incorporate into our practice. So I don't want to pigeonhole you, hold you, Drew. Um, <laughs> but tell me about like the last few years for you, what, what's been really exciting in your life uh, that, um, that you reflect on and say, wow, this is really, this is really something that's special that you, that you've done. Um, you know, thanks Chris for, for inviting me to be a part of this and, and for the conversations over the last few years, as you've, as you've built your podcast, um, you know, I think probably over the last couple of years, it's, it's just been diving into everything during the pandemic, post pandemic, which, um, was an opportunity to also think, uh, about our clinics on a bigger scale and think about our clinics, we always, we consider ourselves physicians, we're recognized physicians, but, um, do we act like physicians and do we treat our clinics, um, at that same level as, as a healthcare facility and, and how do we make policy and, and talk to patients about the whys, um, of that policy or the why we do things a certain way. Um, and perhaps even maybe the differences that we provide, um, I know with our four clinics and kind of the level of care that we, we provided our four clinics versus, maybe something they might find might find elsewhere. And so I think that's been an opportunity over the last two years is, is really, um, I, I'm sure you guys have gotten this, but patients have asked questions of, of our clinic and, and hopefully we have our, had our staff positioned to be able to answer questions um, about what's happening during the pandemic and what we can provide for them and, and how we're navigating that. And I think with everybody, um, including uh, both you and Cheryl, uh, being able to have the chance to put that protocol in place and really have a clearly laid out thought process to how we're going to handle things. Uh, for me, it was a big step forward over the last two years, as opposed to still being in kind of uh, building mode, startup mode. Although I don't know if after 15 years, I can still consider that, that I'm still in that space, but that's the way I felt about it anyway. So yeah, I, I would just say it was those opportunities to problem solve and, and think about things. It was, it was, Different than how am I going to get the next patient in the door? How am I going to um, capitalize on those visits? What medical model am I going to add to the clinic? It was more operational and, and bigger picture. Yeah, well said. So I'm going to come back with some other follow-up questions. But Cheryl, this is uh, this is your chance to, to kind of reflect as well. And, and so for those of you who may or may not know, so I'll, I'll kind of give a little bit of it, more of an introduction. Cheryl's been on the podcast numerous times, mostly for... Um, for providing um, perspective on myopia management. And, and when I think about Cheryl, uh, just in general, I think about kind of 
uh, she is the prototypical in my mind, like orthokeratologist. Like I have never met, I said this on the podcast that will probably come out before this one, but I said this on a podcast recently that, um, that I don't know when I think about myopia managers and orthokeratologists, I think of like all these people that are just running around, like they just finished reading Dianetics, like super excited, really happy, you know, like. <laughs> They're just, they love the profession. I've never met an orthokeratologist. Maybe you know some, Cheryl, but I've never met an orthokeratologist or somebody who's doing myopia management at a really high level that's sort of like worried about what's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen to the profession or is, you know, is this new entity going to gobble up the profession, et cetera, et cetera. And I just never, and so when I talk to Cheryl, it's always like, hey, Chris, how you doing? What's going on? And so I just love that about you, Cheryl. And, and, um, and so, you know, obviously the people who may listen to this podcast, I don't know that they know you. I haven't, I've been kind of tight lipped about it until recently because we've just sort of launched uh, some of the things that we've been working on for the last, what, four and a half years uh, with development and research. And so Cheryl is also a partner of, of my wife and I's uh, and Cheryl and, and Cheryl's husband uh, are kind of founding partners in a company called Peak. And so that's been a lot of fun to work through with Cheryl and uh, and kind of develop some of these things. And so Cheryl, maybe you could talk about Peak if it's the most exciting thing. I suspect it may not be for you, but but tell me what, what's been the kind of most exciting thing for you over the last couple of years? Um, you know, it is really hard to choose, Chris. Um, I have been accused of being a very positive person at times. Um, I don't see that as a bad thing. Um, I think it does help propel me through difficult times. Um, you know, there are, I do split my attention a little bit. I try not to split my attention in too many different directions though, because I feel like if you, if you split your attention too much, you don't, you don't really do anything well. Right. Um, so I just have a few giant pumpkins that I'm trying to grow. Is that a warning to, to me? What's that? Is that a warning to me? <laughs> no, not at all. Uh, but you know, so, so, um, it was, I think January of 2019 that we first had our discussion about really nasty down the decks and how there should be better, like just general hygiene by the public. Right. Um, and so that was when the idea of peak sort of was born. And that was when Chris and I started our discussions about that. So yes, I do get really, really excited about that. Um, the pandemic really slowed us down because I mean, it slowed everything down, all the distribution um, channel stuff. So it's really interesting because as a practice, provider or as a practitioner, we're on the receiving end of those shortages in a little bit different way. Like, ugh, my contact lenses are on back order. I can't get them to my patient or, or I can't, these eye drops are more expensive than they used to be. They keep jacking up the prices of all my, you know, my cost of goods. And, and like, and so we're just trying to deliver this consumable product to the patient that it's hard to deliver um, sometimes or the, everything's slowed down. But with Peak, as we're trying to develop this um, eyelid cleanser and this device to clean the eyelids, it was a whole different perspective because we were on the manufacturing end. And we were like, oh, oh crud, like the lavender fields are like, we can't get lavender. <laughs> like, oh, oh no. Yeah. So it was like, it was, it like kind of gave me some perspective, right? To see the problem from somebody else's viewpoint. Um, but it has been a really fun journey with Chris because I get to, um, you know, have my own practice over here where I work on all my stuff. Um, and then I get to sometimes work with Chris, which is really fun because he's a super smart guy. 
uh, and he has a different perspective than me sometimes. And, uh, and he's not afraid to argue with me, which is really, really cool. Um, and then I just ignore what he has to say and I, I go about my business. <laughs> um, but so that's been really, really exciting. And um, we've just launched Peak now um, into private practice. And um, for those of you who don't really understand what Peak is yet, um, Peak Pro, it's basically like a subscription um, delivery box for doctors to help deliver these goods to their patients um, as a subscription box where the doctor kind of takes himself out of the equation, but still gets recurring revenue from it. Um, and so um, it's nice to know that your patients have um, more compliance because things are being shipped directly to them and that they're using the products that you recommend and that you're getting revenue from it because they're not buying it on um, an online retailer and things like that. Um, so that has been really, really exciting. And yes, I do still really love everything that I'm doing with myopia management. I do love orthokeratology. Um, we have our Vision by Design conference coming up the end of this month in September now. And um, it's just, we're seeing the fruits of our labors, you know, paying off. Everything that we've done for the last couple of years, I feel like is kind of, you know, growing and, and blossoming and becoming really positive again. And so that's kind of where I'm at mentally. Yeah, I think that's great. I think, Cheryl, you know, I can remember. Um, so if I, I will bring this back up only only in the sense of it just makes me appreciate it. And, and all three of you kind of I could I could think about stories like this. But um, I, I've said this before. What what I really value in in my friendships uh, are people who don't necessarily agree with me about things. And actually, strongly disagree with me about some things, but can but we do it in a respectful way, and um, and and then we actually, I believe, come on the other side of that even stronger. And so, you know, you and I have had you know almost like diametrically opposing views on many things over the last couple of years. Some of it business related, some of it um, you know pandemic related, and uh, and I think it's just it's great that that we have that. We can walk away, you know, and, and it's, I don't, I don't feel like, um, I don't feel like, oh no, I were, I'm, Cheryl's not going to like me anymore, you know, cause we disagreed about this. Maybe that's true, but at least you make <laughs> me feel like that's not true. And so like, I value that about, uh, about people. And I, I just hope that, you know, the perspective that, uh, we can share on the podcast historically, Ted and I, and, and when you all are on, um, is that that happens, that's true. And, and we just grow as a, as a, you know, as a, as a society. And actually we even just can grow within the profession because right now I worry so much of the profession is like, you think this way or you're not, you're not with me. You know, you think that way, you're not with me. Go ahead, Cheryl. So, yeah. So I have a perfect example of where we get better by having these conversations. Um, you know how I feel about measuring axial length, Chris. Yeah. <laughs> I feel very strongly that we should measure axial length. Okay. Um, and, and sometimes when you're really, really, really passionate about something and you feel really strongly about it, you maybe come off too strong. And um, <laughs> something that Chris said during one of our conversations, like really stuck with me. And I'm just extremely careful about my wording now. And what he said was, yeah, but Cheryl, if you tell people they have to measure axial length, they just won't even want to do myopia management. And I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So now I, I, changed, I, ch I immediately changed my wording um, and when I talk to people about axial length, I'm like, all right, like you can still do myopia management without axial length, but you should strive towards purchasing an instrument to measure axial length. 
Um, you know, and it, it's just like just changing that wording a little bit, like changes the way you're perceived and changes the way that your message is perceived when you're talking to other doctors, but also when you're talking to your patients, like changing the wording oh, just a little bit changes perception. Totally, totally right. And, and you know, for, from my perspective on the axial length measurement stuff is we have an, we have an axial length, uh, we have a biometer in our practice now, right? So I think the very first time we had that conversation a few years ago, um, I, I was just, I was completely poo-pooing it, but we have one, right? So, so, so it worked on me. And, um, and so I, I think that's, I, I like that it, that I had a little bit of an impact on you as well uh, in that same conversation. Um, so, so let me switch this then to kind of project forward. Now, I'm not going to go as far as to ask you the question on five years, because I think, golly, if you would have asked me three years ago what we would be doing now, I, I think I would have been wrong. I think I would have been dramatically wrong in a lot of ways. In some ways, I would have been right. But I guess I think in total, I would have probably been close, but the journey would have been totally incorrect, right? So, Ted... Two years from now, if everything is like, what's what is a what is a high point of the profession? What what concerns you about the profession? Okay, so let me get my crystal ball out of my back pocket here for a second. Um, you know, it, it's I've got a really great outlook for our profession. Uh, I, I'm I might not hit that low that you want me to hit, but I, I think that a lot of the things that we went through for the last two years have set us up for some very big success. Cheryl, you were saying earlier about how, um, how things sort of slowed down. I think that was a good thing. I think that there, that there was kind of almost this, uh, almost getting out of control type kind of fire that we were starting to get into as we were going into 2020. Um, the, the economy, the way it's going at this point, I mean, I keep hearing rumors that everybody's having a rough time at it, but I look at my practice, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I mean, we're, we're not having a problem at all. Maybe it's again, being rural and it's coming, you know, whereas others haven't. Another thing I think that's happened that we've done really well in optometry is we have moved forward through all the challenges relatively well. And I think learning all that is, is going to truly help us as we move into the next couple of years. Um, I think we're going to start seeing a slowdown in a lot of the private equity type kind of things, especially as interest rates continue to keep rising. Uh, their money is starting to dry up a little bit for those purposes. You're not seeing these massive numbers coming out anymore. I think it's going to become a little bit less exciting perhaps to do that. Um, I'm not saying it's going to go away by any stretch. I think we're, we're in uh, too deep to, so to speak. Um, but as I was looking through uh, a list of externships that my son may get to choose from. I was amazed at how many potential choices included, you know, what it would have never been like that when I was in optometry school 20, 20, 30 years ago, you know, that we would have had even any kind of commercial choices period. And I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's nice that they're getting exposed to a lot of different choices to find out what truly fits for their life. Um, but I think we're going to start seeing a, a definite slowdown on that side of that, uh, of our businesses. I think that we're also going to start seeing dominoes fall with states uh, as the legislation changes. Um, you know, California was a huge, huge win for our profession. Uh, that was probably it's not done yet. Yes, Gavin not, but, still needs to sign it, but to get it through both houses the way they did, that, that's massive. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's a huge the, state. 
you know, and, and I had the opportunity in 2016 to go to West Virginia to get them to when they celebrated their 40th anniversary of the legislation and to, to know where that started and where we are now. It's, it's utterly astounding. Yeah. Well, um, you know, did you hear, uh, Adam Shmila's podcast with, uh, with the, I'm the, my eye doctor guy the other day. I listened to it on the way up here today. You know, I, so I listened on it to it on the way down to Lincoln to testify in front of the board of health about our scope of practice bill in Nebraska or our scope of practice, uh, 407 process. And, um, and I was, what was astounding to me was, I, I think it was a great conversation. I think Adam, um, did a really good job of having that conversation. Uh, the, the thing that, um, was as glaring to me at the end of it was, was really like three points. And I think you hammered the fact that private equity probably is drying up a bit is first, um, there's no magic number, right? Like, like they're going to get their money out of the practice. And, and I keep, you know, you keep wondering like, when's the next shoe drop, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not blaming anybody that sells their practice, but you know, you, you sell the private equity, you're going to get 60 to 70% of your money up front. Uh, and then you're going to work for them for three to five years, probably. Uh, and then at the end of that, you're, you're going to make 15% of what your, of what your, what your, uh, uh, pro fees are, whatever your collectives are. And so you're, you might, if you get a seven times, uh, multiple, well, you're pretty much going to get out what you would have, if you would have stuck in it for the next five years, right? Like, and, and had any growth at all. And so that's the first thing is like, there's, there's nothing magic and there's nothing major to it. And again, it's not blaming or saying it's a wrong decision. It's just like, I was trying to find some additional clarity, like, oh, that's why you'd want to do it. You know, like that's it. And it wasn't, it's just, it was like pure math and, and, you know, underperforming practices, they're looking to push buttons to make them perform better. Things like he was throwing out Optos and Lipaflow and, but like, if you're already, but you're not going to get additional multiplier because your practice is underperforming and they see a gem, right? A a gem in the rough or a diamond in the rough there. And you're going to get, you're only going to get your multiple if you're, uh, if you're performing at a high, high level, or or you're going to only going to get the, the, you're only gonna get the same multiple. It's just going to be more because you have a, a higher incoming uh, gross practice. But at the same time, um, you know, you take a doctor who's already really high performing and functioning well in those spaces. They're not going to like, what buttons are they going to push to make it grow all of a sudden? Like the only thing they can do is try to increase your efficiencies, which means you're already take a practice that's working really well. And you're going to push it to the limits where they may not be able to have the conversations with patients and, and, uh, and spend as much time with them. So that was the first thing. The second thing is they don't get care at all about rural practices. And he said that specifically. And I was shocked. I was like, well, how many rural docs out there think like, this is the way I'm going to get out of this is I'm going to just sell the private equity and they don't care at all. In fact, they were like, that doesn't interest us at all. Like they're out of that game. Um, and then, uh, that, those are the main two things. There was a third one that was sticking out to me. Um, oh, just that, that, uh, there's only so many so many things that they can do, and there is this sort of finite amount of time that that they are going into the next turnaround. And some of these big practices like this, I mean, he was talking about 2012, I think, when when my eye doctor got started. So uh, so they're already 10 years deep. Um, so they're you know these these companies, I mean, they're going to have to be looking for that next spinoff. So it's got to be coming. 
And uh, so anyway, I, I think that that was really interesting to me, Ted. And I think your your crystal ball is pretty pretty right on. Uh, I would agree with it. Anyway, we'll see if it's right on in a couple of years for the 300th episode. So today I want to talk about the MyDay Multifocal for just a second. It has been a really great thing in our practice for our patients who are presbyopes of all areas. But, you know, those tricky presbyopes are always the ones that are kind of emerging where they don't want to give up any of their faraway vision, but they're having some struggles up close. And so what uh, the MyDay Multifocal has been able to do for us is to allow those patients to transition into a multifocal more easily. And then as we have those patients progress into other levels where they need more ad powers, it's been a nice, smooth transition. So the ultimate hurdle that we've seen in our practice before the MyDay Multifocal was that we'd have patients who would resist any transition to a multifocal lens because of that distance blur. We just haven't seen that. So if you haven't started using MyDay Multifocal in your practice, I would encourage you to start, check it out, uh, contact, reach out to your Cooper reps for those trial lenses uh, and commit to MyDay Multifocal for your patients. I think they're going to like it. If you haven't checked out Mackie Health yet for your patients in category one through category four, I think there's a lot of evidence that you should be considering. The first is if we just look at AREDS 2 and what they, they talk about, Mackie Health is a, so for patients in category three and category four um, AMD, Mackie Health is a great option for them that follows that entire, um, that entire protocol. And it also adds mesozeaxanthine to the mix, which if you look at some of the evidence, I believe shows me that it's going to thicken the macular pigment better than without mesozeaxanthine. It also uses the a correct AREDS2 dose of zinc uh, at 25 milligrams. And so you don't have to worry so much about the potential side effects of zinc. The other thing to, to think about, and it's beyond the scope of this, although you've probably heard me talk on other podcasts, is that in patients in category one and two, there may be some additional benefit uh, to supplementing them with something that may be a little bit less than the AREDS2, so you don't have to add as much to it. And that's where I use the Mackie Health LMZ3. And so I think if you haven't done this yet, I'd consider Mackie Health in your practice and for your patients. And it's been great for my patients, and, um, and we really feel like we can have the ability to uh, help those patients in all categories of macular degeneration. Drew, yes. Two years down the road, you you kind of keep a pulse on all the all the techie stuff, and the uh, I know you've got some friends that are doing a lot of kind of really cool things from a, a binocular vision standpoint, VR, uh, AI stuff. What are your thoughts about the next couple of years? Well, I don't. I mean, I still don't know if in the next couple of years we're going to see a huge a huge change. You know, you and I talk all the time about like technology that comes out and they say it's this like disruptive technology, but a lot of times it's really just a way to get around a, an existing rule or an existing regulation. And, and it hasn't really disrupted anything other than the, the cash flow of where that, that money goes and, and who gets to pocket what, and, and then who's left behind with it. So um, I think like you and I always talk about, can we utilize some of this technology though in the future? And I think in the next couple of years, there'll be some clarification on, on how we as private practices can utilize um, perhaps better telemedicine technology and things like that, that, that are available. You, you're really good always about um, the things that people kind of doomsdayers look at and, and, and put the pause on that a moment. And how can we maybe flip that and utilize that in our own practices? As long as, as long as we're all having to follow the same, the same, um, safety regulations and doing no harm to our patients. And, and so I think we'll see increases in, in those opportunities. Um, 
I mean, who knows? We may see some some VR testing that can be done from home or that feeds back into your practice, and and uh, you can make decisions on that uh, with a patient, or and maybe that helps helps with elder care and things of that that nature. But um, as each state starts to fall with those increases in in our scope and things like that, um, you know, the public really here in Nebraska, of course, we've, we've always been able to practice at a, at a, we're falling behind a little bit currently, but have always been able to practice at a pretty high level. And, um, and I think hopefully across the country, and, and I think sometimes the coast falls behind a little bit on this, patients start to see optometrists more and more as kind of that primary care physician. And I think we have to get out of our own ways to some degrees. Uh, it, it's easy to make decisions driven by money, especially as young doctors. Um, but if we can be patient as you come out of school and and spend the time building your patient base and loyalty and and treating your your patients um, not just for the the routine visit that you may be having them in the chair for, but for the future care of their eyes and and making sure that you talk about all of the different components of of that eye care you're providing, um, we can spread that message organically too to our patient bases. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think that's super important, and and uh, and you know, you you made the the comment about a VR headset. I still would love, um, you know, the the technology I would like to see over the next couple of years would be like a like a comprehensive exam screener, where you know, like you could you could have a patient that would come in, and they would they would you know they've got uh, they're in for let's say a primary care exam, and you know you you have a battery of things that you can just get really accurate measurements on accommodation, like all in one, you know, mm-hmm. a, a, a rapid field, a uh, accommodative response, uh, a, a really accurate FOIA measurement, you know, a, a um, pupillometry. Like, so like, it's just like, I could get, have this patient like in one footprint, you know, like my vision, my view would be like one footprint, super efficient. Maybe it's a headset, whatever but it can give you all that information. It's reliable. It doesn't glitch on the, you know, on the connection. I mean, that would be huge where you now all of a sudden it's like, okay, well, you're, you're, you have a comprehensive exam or we're going to do all these things. We're going to give you a really great screener. If something comes back abnormal, now we're going to investigate that a little bit more um, as opposed to using doctor time for that. I think that's a huge potential for, uh, for in, allowing us to be good interpreters of data as opposed to like doers of things, right? That could really transition what we're doing in in clinic to having more of a conversation and and just that next step of data evaluation without having to go to this technology and this technology and this technology. It's like just you know all in one or or most in one. I think would be pretty cool. Yeah, I think I think one thing we will see, and maybe not in two years, but not too far in the future, is is going to be. As opposed to acuities, is more discussion with our patients on quality of vision and, and working more contrast testing in more of the things you know we see with companies like NeuroLens and and uh, and it it evolves beyond just are you seeing twenty twenty what's the you know what's the comfort level of your day um, you know how are your eyes responding and that gets into the dry eye treatments that we do and and all of that so that I think that we will see a change a little bit in the discussion of, of what we're really trying to accomplish. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Cheryl. Now you get the, you get the blessing and the curse of going last because these guys may have taken some of your thoughts, but two years, what do you think? Anything significantly different? 
Um, well, I think we're already seeing a trend where, um, especially this trend was magnified by the pandemic. People are shopping online, right? And now they're shopping online more than ever. And I think practices who haven't been able to evolve could get left behind, um, you know, left in the dust where if they haven't been starting to bring in some sort of like specialty services um, and they're still believing that they should be generating all this revenue from optical sales, like they're probably sweating a little bit. Right. Because um, it's getting harder and harder to rely on optical sales and reimbursements are lower and lower. Um, and so I envision um, the whole profession just kind of moving towards more specialty care um, and relying just sort of out of necessity, relying less on uh, just glasses sales and optical revenues. Um, and I think along with that is dry eye treatment. Um, I think along with that is myopia management. Um, I think myopia management is the thing that gets me so excited all the time because it's like we're just watching history unfold. You know, it's all so very, very new. Um, I feel I feel blessed that I'm practicing at a time when it's evolving so rapidly and we're finding out new and exciting things all the time. Um, you know, I've I've had a chance to meet some of the. Um, orthokeratologists who were there at the very beginning, who've taken things through FDA approval, who've helped develop topography technology, who have helped take orthokeratology from the United States over to Asia and train the doctors in Asia. And, and it went from there. Like, that's really cool that I get to be a part of it right now. Um, and I think that we're going to see as it hits mainstream media and as um, we as we start to have patients understanding what it is and asking for it. Um, doctors are going to become more familiar with it. They're going to be providing more of it. Um, and that's really cool because if you think about it, like myopia is boring, right? Like, I mean, I don't actually think myopia is boring, but like myopia to a doctor that graduated 20 years ago probably seemed like the most dull diagnosis code they could put down. Like, there's just nothing going on. Who right? wants and to see a two doctor myope? Sharon? What's that? Oh, who wants to see two two doctor myopes all day long? That's what people yeah. used to say, right? Yeah, those were the that that was what we said. Who wants to see and a two doctor like, myope all day long? I want them. I, actually, you don't want them. You want them. Send them over. Yeah. I want all those myopes. Yeah. But but there's just so many myopes, and yeah. and now it's so exciting because of what we can do with it. Um, and so, yeah, I think you're going to see a big shift towards that. I think the schools are recognizing that they need to have more of it. Um, and everybody's clambering to figure out how to get the education out there and, and how to, um, you know, the schools want to deliver the education. Organizations like the AAOMC want to deliver the education. Um, doctors are trying to figure out where to go for the education. So it's just it's, it's a cool and exciting time. Um, that and and yeah, your your specialty contacts with like sclerals and and everything we can do with early diagnosis of keratoconus now um, and dry eye treatments. Gosh, it's just cool stuff. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think to your point, I mean, it it prevents the profession from being becoming a commodity. And and like I've said before, when when you view all of those different uh, services that that we can provide and we can uniquely provide and we can provide them better than anybody else can then it sort of adds this stability to your practice. And, uh, and that practice stability is not, it's not accessible to threats from, uh, you know, from online vendors or from big box stores or from somebody else that's just like kind of churning somebody through wherever they practice. 
And, uh, and so, um, you know, I, I, we had a patient the other day that I've been seeing for years and, um, and one of the other doctors in the practice saw that, saw the, the daughter and, and she was like complaining of headaches. She was, a a, um, uh, you know, what you'd consider like not a true CI, but definitely way more, uh, exo at near than at distance, a classic like neuro lens patient. And, um, and, uh, the doctor, the other doctor in the practice, uh, recommended neuro lens and the, the, um, the mom. So there were two options basically. It's like, well, you, we could have neuro lens. Uh, well, we had also re- re- recommended, uh, vision therapy in the past, but we said, well, now we have this other option that you can try instead of vision therapy. Well, the, the mom didn't want to pay for vision therapy. And then when she got out front, she didn't want to pay for neuro lens. Uh, so, um, so she decided she was going to go see another, uh, provider who wasn't an optometrist to get their opinion. And you're kind of like, all right, good luck. You know, they're going to tell you nothing's wrong and we'll see you later. You know, it's like, okay, well, that's fine. Right. Like you get to the point, Cheryl, of what you're saying is like, it make because, because we can take care of patients so uniquely and so much better than, than other providers that, uh, that try to do what we do. Um, that you're just kind of like, like not in a bad way or a negative way, you're just kind of like, well, I hope they can help you. But in the back of your mind, you know, like they're not, they're not going to find anything at best. They'll do a, a the tech is going to do a cover test and they'll look at it like, Oh, there's nothing wrong with you for your headaches. See you later. And, uh, and so I, I make that point to say that, yes, it, it insulates you. And, and when the patients don't, they'll be back, they'll be back and they'll, they'll decide, well, they couldn't help me either. Maybe I'll try what you recommended. Yeah. For the ones that even are questioning the, the fact that it's, it's worth their time or worth their while. So Chris, how about you? What do you think is going to be a wild guess? Oh, I'm, I'm interviewing tonight. No, we're um, turning the table on this one. I can't not sit back and not ask a question at least one. Well, I think, um, Golly, you guys have taken a lot. I didn't think I was going to have to answer this. I, so <laughs> I think uh, now hurts, don't it? Yeah, <laughs> I know it does hurt. So I think I think that you know all the things that we've kind of summarized today. I think that's a big one. I think healthcare systems. Um, this the one that I I do get concerned about is uh, right now we're in this this period of rapid inflation, and and so I, I think this is an opportunity, and I think it's a threat as well in the next couple of years is how are healthcare systems going to continue to um, offset the fact that their providers are having, are struggling to, to, uh, to offset costs in their own infrastructure without in, so, so healthcare systems can increase fees. Like they can charge the, the person more and they'll pay doctors basically the same or slightly more, right? Like if we're talking about, managed vision care providers, generally speaking, it's going to be the same. Uh, and, and maybe you get a little bit of a raise in Medicare, maybe, although we've gotten cuts this year. Um, and then private payers, maybe you get a, a little bit of a raise. But again, most of those are going to follow Medicare. So how are, how are those, um, how are those healthcare systems going to afford to continue to have the quality care that they're trying to obtain from physicians? With those physicians having basically the only answer of, of well, really one of two answers. One is to just see more patients, which is what most of us will do. Most of us will say, I'm going to see more patients. 
The second answer is I'm going to provide more services that are that may not be covered. Well, I'm not sure that that's always in the best interest of the patient. Uh, I think I think that's where our duty comes in as as physicians is to say, does this service serve my patients, and is there a, a, a is there a way a mechanism that we can get compensated for that? I think whether it is covered or non-covered, that's where it becomes more of a struggle. But I think that's going to be ever more important. And I think over the next couple of years, that's what I see as being a, an opportunity for, for providers that can, that can provide services that patients need and want, and that isn't going to be dictated by, isn't necessarily dictated by a payer. Um, and if you can navigate that, I think that's a huge opportunity, which I think blends in with what many of you are talking about. But I think, uh, the 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 struggle that's going to happen is if inflation continues to increase and increase and increase you i think you will get to the point where you will where it's going to be very hard to have a provider pool that will do both which is what i believe all of us do or you're saying look i do take some insurance plans and i do some things that are outside of insurance plans but i think if they continue to squeeze that where there's such a drastic even for our medical payers a drastic dichotomy between the, the services that we, we believe we need to provide for a patient because it is the right thing to do and, and the fees that, that are commensurate with that service and just the service that is, that is covered. Um, I think that, that we may see this kind of shifting away from insurance plans um, in a large proponent uh, or large proportion of, of the profession uh, when when that can't happen. Now, I think that's going to be a super big struggle, but imagine if we have two or three years of 9% inflation uh, and you know, you're getting, even from your medical payers that, you know, you, you should have gotten, let's say for a service that they were paying for a hundred dollars for in three years, just to keep up with inflation should be paying, you know, $130 for that, that starts to, when you start having a hard time swallowing the pill of medical insurance, uh, even even outside of, of you know managed vision care where that managed vision care is delivering you a patient that is not even not profitable from a managed vision care standpoint, but they're not even profitable on selling them glasses or contact lenses or profitable when you get to their medical insurance. Now I think people are going to have to have a harder uh, struggle with, with are they going to be providers on that plan? And do they want to actually uh, decide to see less patients and just say, look, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I think that if, in this dystopian world, I think there's a huge opportunity there, but I think that is a potential risk where you see really high level providers that don't want to mess with this anymore and don't want to mess with the overhead because it's hard to find staff. It's hard to pay staff, all these other sorts of things. And they might say, look, I could do this all on my own, take a step back uh, and, and see five to five to seven patients a day. And it's me, maybe one over other person, maybe, but look, we've got online online scheduling, uh, texting for re appointment reminders. Um, you know, you've got, you've got third parties that can do all your billing, essentially, if you have a, a, an understanding of like what codes to use. I think there's a lot of opportunity to be very flexible and nimble in your practice if the weight of, of, manage, of managed care in general starts to pull you down. So I don't know if that's going to happen in two years, but I do think that um, it's something that, that I think uh, is it just a totally different way to practice, and I I wouldn't be surprised to see more people doing it. So what is I'm asking everybody this question: What's more dangerous to our profession, our reliance on materials or primary care optometry? 
So when you say primary care optometry, what do you mean by that? Because I think of me as Just, doing primary care optometry. Yeah, well, see, that's the th- that's the thing. I mean, you know, I feel like there's this almost if we're not willing to start setting ourselves truly apart, especially in more urban settings and suburban settings. I think it's a little bit easier maybe in a rural setting to be a little bit more broad. But there's still got to be this reliance of Cheryl with, you know, especially looking more in toward myopia management and dry therapy. Uh, I think that those practices that are just, as you said earlier, staying where they've been staying are in deep trouble. Yeah, I guess I'll take it first so I don't have to go last this time. I would say our <laughs> reliance on I think I think our reliance on materials is going to be probably the worst thing. Um, because again, those cost of goods are going to continue to escalate, and and it is a it, it is a widget that anybody else can do. Maybe they can't do it as well, but it's a widget. And I'm not saying we give up on it. I'm not right. But what I am saying is that our our pure reliance on that, I think, is is going to be probably the worst thing that could happen. Worse than primary care because I think primary care, if you're doing it at a high level, I think you still get to serve a lot of patient needs. And there's all these other opportunities for things that are not uh, materials that are involved. Where I think that that there could be a problem is that uh, if we rely too much on a single widget, you know, I, I still will give talks at, or and, and then workshops where doctors are worried about, you know, there's some this cohort of doctors that, you know, don't want to do gonioscopy on a regular basis, don't want to touch around the eyelid, don't want to inject around the eye. I mean, they're, they're kind of worried about that stuff, manipulating eyelids. You know, I think we, we have to continue to be proficient technically with our hands. And, um, because that's something that we can't, you can't replicate, uh, in a, in a widget. So anyway, for whatever that's worth, I think the, I think the reliance on materials is probably the biggest threat. How about you, Cheryl? I agree. I think, um, reliance on materials is a bigger threat. Than, than primary care optometry. But I think it's because I'm, I'm kind of visualizing it in the same way that Chris is, that to me, I feel, even though I have some subspecialties that are really strong subspecialties, I feel like I deliver primary care optometry. That doesn't mean I deliver routine vision plan optometry though, right? Because there's a difference. Um, I, I, dropped a vision plan during the pandemic and it was the perfect time to drop it because we didn't want to be packing patients in. Um, and, you know, as I look back at trends in our practice, I look back at numbers and I, and I look now at how difficult it is to hire. Uh, I have fewer staff and my revenue is up. And I feel like if I still had that vision plan, I'd be spinning my wheels more. I'd be the hamster on the wheel um, and I would have to have more staff than I have currently. Um, and, and personally, I would rather have fewer staff. It's easier to manage. Pay my existing staff better to do harder stuff and do it better and be more highly trained. Like, to me, that's quality of life. That's, that's how much I enjoy my practice is um, directly affected by those sorts of things that I get to do and the sort of staff I get to surround myself with. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of a long-winded answer to say, in my mind, primary primary optometry can be very diverse and can be um, very very high scope. Um, whereas materials are just materials. Like I don't care how many fancy coatings it has or how many how how 
you know, digital that design is or whatnot, it's still just a material that the patients ultimately um, don't always feel it's worth to pay that and they just want to get cheap stuff online. So. True. Um, I'm, I might go a little bit against the grain with, I think, I think the not differentiating awesome. from primary care versus refractive care. Um, I think in our world, there's a lot of people who spin dials and spit out prescriptions that are portraying that as primary care. And, and that isn't primary care is everything that we have all been talking about and taking the opportunity of getting that routine exam back in for dry eye care, myopia management, um, disease, you know, and, and making sure that we're very clear with explaining to patients what we are doing and that, and that what, what was different between that routine exam versus the care we're providing for the healthcare, um, of their eyes is, is different. Um, I, I do agree that relying on current materials, um, is probably not a great thing, but again, who's to say in two years, we don't have somebody that brings out a lens that you, uh, you take measurements in a VR goggle that shows your accommodation and the lens is able to adapt to your personal accommodation or ability of your eyes to, to, uh, glance at different distances and we progressive lenses are a thing of the past or sclera lenses that have some kind of electronic, you know, display that have to be fit in a primary care setting. So, um, you know, you, like Chris said, you can't get away from materials because there, there could be opportunities in the future of, of that are just different though than the materials that we provide. But yeah, if materials don't change, um, then yeah, you never have innovation to, to differentiate and, and improve on for patients. And so, yeah, you're just buying a widget at that point. Dad, awesome question. Do you want to answer it? Yeah. Um, I, I think probably along the moral lines, what Drew was saying, I think that the, and Cheryl, you sort of led into this is, I think you think that there's a misconception as to what private primary care truly is. I think primary care is the digging. Well, I, I'll put it this way. I had a, I had a guest one time say, so really what is it that you do all day long? And I go, <laughs> I try to find everything I can wrong with you and hope I don't find it. That's what I'm trying to do. And I think that's the part that we, we spend so much time digging into their, you know, refractive status to sell this widget as opposed to, uh, and I think NeuroLens is a great way to to take us into a different direction with this because we're truly not only taking care of their visual status, but but creating a, a much better quality of life for them. They had all these challenges, and and I, I have been the biggest skeptic of, of this technology uh, until I had this kid that came in. I say kid, he was almost thirty years old, um, who had these intractable headaches, wasn't getting any better, you know. And I just thought, well, you know, let's try it. See what happens. He calls me up a week later, says I haven't had one single headache since I had this thing. It's it's you know it's enough for me to go okay wow that changed his life. I'm behind this. To your point, Drew, what other kind of technologies are going to come away that are going to take what we're doing in in primary care and truly give some impact to someone's life? That's what I think that primary care really is all about. It is. I think that's where we, we need to focus ourselves, but it's, it's making sure that people understand that the refraction side of it is not the exam. Um, you know, and uh, I'm going to get burned as a heretic for saying this, but all this stuff that's we're all worried about, you know, all these technologies that are disruptive and doing the refraction. If I'm not doing my job, 
goodness, I hope they go to see somebody else instead of seeing me. Um, you yep. know, and that's just a small, small part of what I'm supposed to be doing. If it makes their life better, great. But there are so many other pieces of the puzzle that they're just not getting to see. So I, I think that it's defining what primary care truly is, using those materials to back up the, what we find and how we get it to work, as opposed to relying on them to make our lives um, or to you know set our retirement up. Yeah, well, I think yeah. there's no better way than to finish this than uh, than that question and that answer, Ted. So, um, so Ted McElroy, Drew Bateman, and last but not least, Cheryl Chapman. Thanks for doing this with me. Thanks for doing all these years with me. Uh, it's been a ton of fun. I can't wait to have the next uh, 200 episodes and the next three and a half years alongside you guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Chris. Thanks. It's been a blast. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, it's been great.